It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalhoub. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, April 25th, 2022, I'm Mike Emanuel. It is less than 200 days from Election Day when American voters decide the direction of the American government for the next two years. It could have a huge impact on President Biden's agenda as a GOP win would force him to govern in a more bipartisan way. The party out of the White House typically picks up about 27 seats on average in the first midterm. But when a president's approval rating is below 50 percent, that jumps to 37. So it's not a good sign for our friends on the other side of the aisle. And Lisa Brady. It's a labor of love born out of pain. A woman shares her late sister's story to raise awareness about mental illness. I really hope that people just feel less alone. Um, I think that in order to have more compassion as a society, we just need to be telling more stories like this and hopefully encouraging empathy and conversation. I'm Liz Peek. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Every two years, American voters get to decide the balance of power in the House of Representatives and the Senate. For Republicans, there's been tremendous frustration since losing the White House in the 2020 election. But polling suggests there could be a swing in November. Inflation, crime, and the border crisis could all help Republicans on the ballot. Texas Governor Greg Abbott explains why voters feel hesitant about President Biden's decisions at the border. If he lifts Title 42, uh, it will be catastrophic for the United States of America because look only uh, at what his own Department of Homeland Security has stated, and that is to expect, with the lifting of Title 42, about 18,000 people coming across the border per day. As Americans fear a lack of preparation at the border will cause chaos, Texas Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar told Fox's Neil Cavuto the Biden White House is making a huge mistake. The administration is handing over uh, a perfect narrative for Republicans to go after Democrats in November. Uh, and, and they just don't understand why that's being handed over to the Republicans. Hmm. This narrative of open borders uh, down at the uh, in our southern area. When looking at Mr. Biden's domestic decisions, Virginia Republican Congressman Rob Whitman told Fox's Jason Chaffetz the policies of the Biden administration are hitting Americans hard in the wallet. Every policy. Jason, they have put in place since they've come in office has exacerbated the economic condition. And I would argue, continue to make the economic conditions worse. In fact, many economists say that we're on track, not just for inflation, but to be facing a recession in the next 12 months. Some Republicans are so hopeful about the next election, they wish it would happen today or even yesterday. But in fewer than 200 days, voters will have their say. Even though we don't rely on history, Mike, uh, we actually are out to make our own history. National Republican Congressional Committee Chairman 
Congressman Tom Emmer. History tells us that in the first midterm, the party that that is in the White House typically uh, experiences some challenges. And this is frankly consistent with that history. We saw it down in Texas as well in the primaries, the first primary in the nation, Mike, on March 1st, when uh, we had more than double the Republican turnout from two years ago. The other thing it tells me when it comes to uh, uh, the independents is that they're acting like independents. I think you'll see that 30 some percent enthusiasm. You'll see that jump uh, dramatically as we get closer to the fall. A big problem for the other side is obviously the man in the White House. Uh, CBS News poll earlier this month pegged Joe Biden's approval rating at a record low of 42 percent, and it was even lower for his handling of the economy, 37 percent, and inflation, 31 percent. How do you read those numbers? Well, they're consistent with what we're seeing. And uh, really, it's related to the fact that uh, this administration has uh, created crisis after crisis since taking office. Uh, They've destroyed American energy independence, which has led to double-digit inflation. Uh, People are feeling it in the grocery store. They're feeling it at the pump. Uh, There's been no attempt to address the crime wave across this country. Uh, This defund the police nonsense is still a uh, a mantra of uh, mainstream uh, Democrats. And the border's open and you just generally it's incompetence. And Mike, the numbers show that I think since World War II, on average, the party out of the White House typically picks up about 27 seats on average in the first midterm. But when a president's approval rating is below 50 percent, that jumps to 37. So it's not a good sign for our friends on the other side of the aisle. I've had some folks suggest that it may not be a big red wave because of the way these districts are drawn these days because of gerrymandering. What are your expectations? Well, I've said from day one that I expected redistricting to be a wash. And quite frankly, Mike, it has been a wash. All we asked for was a open, fair and transparent process. Uh, And not to pick on uh, folks like you in the media, but it's a great story for the folks in the media to keep talking about gerrymandering. Look, uh, this is the way it's done. Our state legislatures across this country uh, draw the lines. If there's a problem, courts get involved and make sure that they are fair and these uh, districts work. For us, Mike, you don't win elections through redistricting. You win them with great candidates, a good message, and a vote for a Republican next fall is going to be a vote to get inflation under control. It's going to be a vote to get this crime wave under control. It's going to be a vote to, frankly, uh, have competent leadership in government again. You've touched on a few of the hot button issues. I'm curious what you think really are the top issues. Uh, Inflation obviously hitting every American in the wallet these days. Uh, We've got a crisis at the southern border. What else is connecting with folks across the country? Listen, we've done more polling than ever in the history of the National Republican Congressional Committee, the campaign arm uh, that I have the privilege of uh, chairing. Uh, We've done seven battleground polls this cycle already, Mike, and those concentrate on the 85 districts that frankly have determined who is in the majority over the last 10 years. Uh, The interesting thing that we found is the top two issues for Republicans and independents in these districts are inflation in the economy and crime. By comparison, the top two issues for Democrats in these swing districts happen to be climate change and COVID. That is the issue, Mike. you got to be listening to the American voters. They are concerned about double-digit inflation and crime in our southern border. 13% of Democrats say they are not at all enthusiastic about voting. That would be a striking number, and I'm sure it is giving uh, some ulcers to your friends across the aisle at the DCCC. 
yes and no. They they seem to be a little insular in their thinking. They seem to uh, think that they know better than the American voters. Somewhere along the way, they have forgotten uh, that this is a customer service business. You are elected by the people uh, to represent the people. And if you're not doing the job, they're going to find somebody else to do the job. I heard a Democrat last night say something that's very interesting. Uh, a Democrat from uh, the state of New York said, if you were going to ask me today, what the Democrat Party stands for in this country, I'd have a hard time telling you. That's the issue. Republicans do know what the issues are. It's about getting spending under control so that we can get this inflation under control, uh, allow people to stop living paycheck to paycheck and enjoy life again here in this country uh, by being safe and free in their communities. I'm curious these days because back in the day, it used to be that when you were a freshman in Congress, you kind of sat in the back and you watched and you listened and you learned. These days, a lot of these folks are coming in with big social media followings. I'm thinking of people like AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of her colleagues. Uh, is that destructive in Congress when freshmen come in and kind of think like they're in charge as well? Well, you're, you're making me smile and almost laugh, Mike, because it's not just indicative of Congress. This is indicative of our society today. You know, if you look back 20, 30 years ago, people coming out of college or uh, just coming out of high school and taking a job, they typically stayed in the same place, if not for their whole career, for most of their career. And they did exactly what you talk about. They actually uh, listened more than they spoke to begin with. They learned the ropes. They grew within their position until they ultimately were the senior leaders themselves and had the wisdom and uh, thoughtfulness to make good, strong decisions. Today, young people are empowered, which is not a bad thing. And they uh, they don't like something, they're going to move on. It's no different in Congress. And uh, it's just something you have to contend with. It's going to take strong leadership and new types of leadership to frankly uh, bring these different personalities together and get them to march in the same direction. But I think uh, Americans uh, who are running for office today and who are occupying elected office uh, understand with the challenges, and I think we're going to be up to it. It would seem to me, as someone leading the Republican campaign committee, the Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, when you see poll numbers like you've got right now, you'd like the vote to be today. Um, as we are less than 200 days out from Election Day, are there certain issues that you're watching that maybe concerned could shift things or could potentially help you even more? Like, does inflation get worse or better? Uh, what about the lifting of Title 42? Could any of those issues really influence the election in the final 200 days? Without a doubt, Mike. I mean, uh, you said I wish it was today. I wish it was yesterday, uh, but it's not. It's six months out and a lot can happen in six months. You know, we've talked about it. The top three issues are very clear today. And the incompetence of the leadership in the White House uh, has led to a destabilization around the globe as well. And people are very concerned about their uh, safety and the state of the uh, world affairs going forward. So who knows? Uh, Title 42, all you got to do is uh, take a look at Democrats like Mark Kelly, Raphael Warnock in uh, Georgia, the last person you'd expect to break with the president. He is a true believer of the socialist agenda and even Raphael Warnock realizes that this is a major problem for him for uh, retaining his Senate seat. So, yes, these are going to impact the Democrats even further. They don't seem to be changing course, Mike. Uh, but we, we pay attention to everything because we do not take anything for granted. There's a long way to go. And this is uh, this is not over until the last vote is counted. I'm wondering, as you uh, look at your job, has it been satisfying trying to find 
great candidates to run in all these districts around the country. Uh, I know it's not done yet, so you probably have a better assessment after Election Day. But uh, your thoughts on taking this leadership role and, and how it's been? I went to Washington, Mike, to uh, create great policy to help people in my community, in my uh, state and across the country uh, have an opportunity for a better life. When we lost the majority in 2018, this is what I decided I needed to do. And uh, it's been rewarding. Uh, Assuming we finish the job we started, uh, we will be able to govern. And that's actually why I did it. And that would be incredibly satisfying. In the meantime, you know, I'm I'm really proud of the fact that uh, our conference is starting to look and sound more like the districts that we represent across this country. I mean, Mike, we've got a record number of women. Again, we're breaking the record from last cycle uh, when, by the way, we didn't lose any uh, Republican incumbents for the first time since 1994 in a uh, cycle when they said we were going to lose 15 to 24 seats. We didn't. We actually picked up 15 and they were all with women or candidates from minority communities. And I'm here to tell you, we have more uh, minority candidates running and more women than ever in our history. For goodness sakes, we've got three Hispanic women teed up in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas to win this fall. Mike, I don't think they've had a Republican in the Rio Grande Valley, let alone a female uh, representative in 100 years. Okay, so if a Republican holds the speaker's gavel in the new Congress and if there are Republicans holding the chairman's gavel in all these committees, what can American voters expect from a Republican Congress? Like I said, you run to win and you win to govern. I expect Kevin McCarthy will be the speaker. And I expect what you'll see, you've already seen a piece of it, for instance, the parental bill of rights that the Republican conference rolled out more than a month ago, giving parents a say in their children's education, regardless of what these powerful teachers unions uh, and their uh, Democrat allies in Congress really want, which is to keep parents out. Those types of things, you're gonna see that commitment to America, I think uh, Leader McCarthy is calling it. But really, if you put it in a nutshell, from my perspective, a Republican, a vote for a Republican this fall is going to be a vote uh, for economic security to get our inflation under control and help people actually uh, reach the American dream that they're chasing. It'll be a vote to get crime under control across this country. And once again, recognize the rule of law is what creates a civilized society. It'll be a vote to secure our southern border and ultimately It will be a vote for competent leadership once again in Washington, D.C. The National Republican Congressional Committee Chairman, Congressman Tom Emmer of the great state of Minnesota. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Safe travels and have a great week. Thank you, Mike. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Liz Peek with your Fox News commentary coming up. A cry for help. That's how one CDC official describes a recent analysis of mental health in high school students during the pandemic. 44% saying in 2021 that they persistently felt sad or hopeless in the past year. But that's just part of a broader and growing conversation about mental health and mental illness. The president gave us a charge. 
Let's stop treating mental health as a stepchild in the health care sector. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra pledging to break down barriers. Too often, though, diagnosis and treatment can be a very long road. And sometimes the answers never come or they aren't enough. Kate Letty was just 22 when she's presumed to have jumped off the Benjamin Franklin Bridge in Philadelphia. Her journey went from happy childhood to schizophrenia, winding through two head injuries, a hormonal disorder, and an escalation in frightening behavior, rages, hallucinations, and violent attacks on her family. The final four years of her life, fruitless efforts at treatment, including stays in psychiatric hospitals. And so different from the Kate her little sister had loved and idolized. At some point early in the process, my editor called it a love letter. Kylie Letty has written a book about her family's heartbreaking journey, The Perfect Other, a memoir of my sister. She's also training to be a therapist and wrapping up work on a master's degree in social work. I wanted to share my sister's story and my family's story with the hope that it could help other people who are going through something similar, not feel so alone. Your sister's official diagnosis was schizophrenia, right? But but it it was a long road even to get to that point. Yes, exactly. It was a lot of diagnoses thrown around at different times. Um, we went from bipolar disorder to just, you know, teenage rebellion, and then she had a head trauma, which feels so, it's so chaotic and confusing the moment. But when you talk to other families, I think it does happen like that a lot of times. It's so hard to nail down exactly what's going on. And even at the end, you know, we weren't totally sure what was really happening. Right. And at, at one point you described the, the path of mental illness as zigzagging. Um, but then you also write, there were signs if you had known what to look for. And I feel like that's really one of the most difficult things about mental illness in general, is that so often it is an illness of those hindsight questions. Oh, yeah, definitely. And writing a book is the ultimate act of, you know, retroactively looking at the past um, and getting a chance to examine everything and lay it out. You know, for me, too, with the writing process, I was looking at records and looking at, you know, my sister's old medications and hospitalizations and trying to put a timeline to things. And that really struck out, stuck out to me, too, because it shows you just how the narrative is actually forming. While in the moment, you can't see that clearly. Mm, you write that you were frequently paralyzed once you did start writing the book because of the fact you knew that everyone's experience is different and that you wouldn't be capturing all of it or even trying to capture all of it. You can't capture everyone's experiences. How did you make peace with that and keep going? That's a great question. <laughs> um, that's definitely something that I struggled with. I really didn't want to make some blanket statement saying this is what mental illness is and this is the only way it can show up. You know, like our family had a lot of privileges, other families don't. And we also, you know, it was it was a unique story. It's our family story. But then when you look at like I've worked in hospitals before, I've worked in psychiatric units, I've worked in homeless shelters even, and I've seen so many patterns come up where you know, there are some symptoms and some even some verbatim hallucinations and delusions and you, you see it again, again, again. So I, I want to just put our story out there and say, if you relate to this, then I hope it helps you. If it doesn't help you, then don't read it. <laughs> like, it's just there if you need it. You do make a point um, about the 
dangerousness of letting there be a disconnect between the mind and the body in terms of how this disease is looked at and diagnosed and treated. Is that one of the main takeaways from the research that you've done? Definitely. I really wanted just to be able to say I don't have the answers to exactly what's going on because I don't think that science is there yet. You know, I have a quote in the book that talks about how we know more about space than we do about our own brains, which is scary because we don't know a lot about space. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there's so much that I can't give answers to. But I know for one thing that mental illness is absolutely real and that it deserves our compassion and our medical attention. And we need more creative solutions, these problems. I don't really feel like as a society, we've fully invested the time and resources into it. Yeah, and and, and the fact that the, not only does the, can the mental affect the physical, but the it, go, it works the other way too. The physical can affect the mental in terms of that connection with the biochemistry. And exactly. um, that's, do you think, is there traction on that? Do you think that that message is something that's resonating and that the sort of the, the larger health community is, is getting? Are they getting it? I hope so. I think that we're getting there. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, if you look at some of the data, just like I have a study in there, I talk about um, it was Dr. Anne McKee in a 2017 New York Times piece where she looked at 111 NFL players' brains after they had deceased and 110 of them had chronic traumatic encephalitis, which is basically just swelling in the brain from repeated trauma. And my sister also had head trauma. And I don't, you know, you look at that kind of data and you see those connections with, you know, mood disorders and cognitive decline and memory loss, and it can age the brain as much as like by five years. So we have all this data there. It's showing us that these issues are real and it's happening. You know, like 25%, I think, of homeless people have had a traumatic brain injury as well. And 30% of individuals experiencing homelessness also have a serious mental illness. So there's so many connections that I think that if we just start trying to draw some lines and look at things from a different angle, you can see how it's affecting our society at large. Right. And 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 maybe the fact that you don't, it's not like you have to play 10 seasons in the NFL to have enough damage to the brain to have an impact. Um, yeah, exactly. There are many statistics about mental illness. Uh, you've shared some, but the dedication in your book has perhaps the most jarring statistic, I think. 970 million people, so nearly 1 billion people, suffer from a mental health disorder. And you write, this book is for their suffering and for those who love them. And then on the next page, you add, all I can hope is that it helps even just a single person, even just for a moment. How are you hoping that it can help? I really hope that people just feel less alone. Um, I think that in order to have more compassion as a society, we just need to be telling more stories like this and hopefully encouraging empathy and conversation. For me, the stigma of mental illness was one of the hardest things to go through because I didn't feel like I could open up about it at the time. And that just creates more isolation and more confusion and makes everything from treatment to family support more difficult. So I really hope that, you know, people who read this, whether they come into it from the sister angle, you know, they don't have mental health in their families, but maybe they have a sibling or, 
you know, they have a child who's going through something or you know, even myself, I talk about my own mental health struggles in this from the perspective of trauma and anxiety and depression that is a little more relatable maybe than the severe mental illness side of it. You know, no matter where you're relating to it, I just hope you, that the reader feels like they are connected and that, you know, they feel like there's hope. Are we on the right track um, just by talking more openly about mental illness? Yeah, definitely. I wonder if we could be having this conversation like 20 years ago, for example. Um, I think that our society is definitely making strides and we talk about mental health all the time. I just don't know if we talk about mental illness the same when it, become, when it comes to like severe psychiatric disorders. Yeah. Do you, How did you come up with the title, The Perfect Other? I mean, it's very descriptive, but at first glance, when someone hasn't read the book yet, it, it may sound like something else. What does it actually mean? My agent was the one who came up with the title and I see it in two ways. I see it as, you know, my sister and I were a duo, we were a pair and she was my idol and she was the perfect other to my pair. But I also see it as mental illness is so othering. And my sister was someone who had so much going for her. Like I said, she was just this, this person who had everything. She was a model, she was brilliant, she was fun. She was popular and then she suffered this immensely stigmatizing and isolating disease. So in that sense, she is the perfect other and hopefully, you know, a good spokesperson now to talk about it. We hear a lot of stories about people who do get help and seem to be making great progress, even thriving. But then one day they're still lost. The illness wins, if you will. Um, this book maintains a sense of hope, though, instead of inevitability. Why? Is it out of sheer necessity? We simply cannot, you know, let ourselves lose the hope? Yeah, I think that, you know, I compare sometimes in the book schizophrenia to dementia in the sense of the actual neurology behind it, but also that you, you know, the person you have someone who's experiencing Alzheimer's, they come back to themselves sometimes and then they might slip back into their dementia. So my sister was very similar where she would be herself again for a moment and then she'd go away again. And that's in my opinion, the hardest way to lose somebody. But I think that hope is a necessity and I'm a very optimistic person <laughs> by nature. And I really believe that, you know, our society is ready to have these conversations, like we said earlier, and that through talking about openly and having this kind of discourse, we can look for solutions. And, you know, the, the medicine, I think, and the science of it is also catching up. So I really just want to be able to spread awareness as much as possible so that we can make some strides. Kylie Letty, author of The Perfect Other, A Memoir of My Sister. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and with the world. Thank you for having me. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday. Former President Trump could learn if he's on the hook for $10,000 a day fines for failing to turn over personal and business documents to the New York Attorney General's office in its investigation into the Trump Organization. 
Wednesday. The Labor Department and OSHA will discuss a proposed final rule designed to protect healthcare workers who have direct contact with people infected with COVID-19. Thursday. The NFL draft kicks off in Las Vegas. The Jacksonville Jaguars will get the first pick in round one. Thursday also marks the beginning of a new policy from Amazon, with the online retail giant imposing a 5% fuel and inflation surcharge on merchants that warehouse and ship their products through fulfillment centers across the U.S. Saturday. Dubbed the Woodstock for Capitalists, Berkshire Hathaway will host its shareholders meeting in person for its annual gathering in Omaha, Nebraska, after two years of viral meetings because of the pandemic. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Liz Peek. What's on your mind? Remember strategic ambiguity? That was the term politely used to excuse Barack Obama's lead-from-behind dealings with ISIS, China, and other foreign threats. Under Joe Biden, we see strategic incoherence, policy set by the Biden White House on energy, foreign affairs, inflation, immigration, health, and so much more, is confused and contradictory. The recent White House flip-flop on oil and gas drilling, made under cover of the holiday weekend, is just the latest example. Since taking office, Biden has made it clear that his Made in America push applies to everything but oil and gas, even as Americans are struggling with gasoline prices, which are 42 percent higher than last year. The president promised during the 2020 campaign to shut down drilling on federal lands and from the start of his administration has done everything possible to keep his promise, including immediately halting new leasing and slow walking of drilling permits. But as inflation has soared and his approval ratings have plummeted, Biden has done an about-face, finally putting federal acreage up for lease. Mind you, the amount offered to drillers was 80% less than had been planned, and he raised royalty rates 50%. That is, even as he moves to reverse the decline in U.S. oil output that is helping keep world oil prices high, he tempers the proposed policy shift to mollify the climate alarmists in his party. This is not the only policy arena in which Joe Biden is thrashing about like a landed trout. Consider his treatment of Russian President Vladimir Putin, whom Biden has said is guilty of genocide, a war criminal whom Biden thinks should be driven out of office, and yet someone whom the White House is allowing to broker a new Iran nuclear deal. That's right. In case you missed it, even as Biden has promised to make Putin a pariah on the world stage, he has not only given the Russian despot star billing on the world stage, he has provided the Klieg lights as well. On the economic front, Biden is equally incoherent. He says the economy has, quote, gone from being on the mend to on the move, unquote, and that he is doing everything possible to fight inflation, which at eight and a half percent is an 40 year high. And yet, Biden's health and human services secretary, Xavier Bachara, just extended the national public health emergency for another three months, which allows people to receive expanded food stamp benefits and Medicaid without the usual work or job training requirements. I started by describing Biden's contradictory policies as strategic incoherence. What is the strategy? To play both sides of the political spectrum in order to appease as many voters as possible. Unhappily for Biden, it isn't working. 
Voters in all age, income, and racial groups have soured on this president. Who is surprised? This is Liz Peek, Fox News contributor. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.